welcome to the Culture and Performance Podcast with me, Ben Ryan. Cheers for all the great feedback. It is so lovely to hear. The reviews and the ratings have been coming in on Apple too. Podcasting doesn't get much better than this, which just part of a lovely message from Teldrum. Thank you, and I am really excited to bring you a lot more great episodes over the coming weeks. This week's show comes from one of the most inhospitable but beautiful places on earth as we chat to explorer Wendy Searle. When things go wrong, they, they go badly wrong and small things can become much bigger problems. There are times when the sun was out and the surface was good and the beauty was extraordinary. And it was like you imagine being in heaven. You've survived this because you've got the experience and the training. And that's when I actually started to believe. A mother of four with a busy job, Wendy wanted to show others that extraordinary is available to everyone. She is the seventh woman and fourth fastest in history to ski solo and unassisted from the coastline of Antarctica to the South Pole. The 715 mile route took her 42 days. She fell over every day, lost 12 kilograms in body weight, had moments of pure elation and moments of pure devastation. But through it all, she never had a single day off and kept her mantra, stop crying and start skiing close to hand. It was a really refreshing chat with Wendy. She doesn't come from a very sporting background. She doesn't have any high level sporting successes on her CV and she has never been part of a high performance program in a traditional way. It all comes from her, from her drive and her purity of purpose. We talk planning and logistics, getting up early, dealing with sastrugis and skiing through whiteouts, as well as just being able to deal with the enormity of the challenge and all the curveballs it throws at you without anyone else's help. And we started with the question, why did you attempt this? Originally, when I set out to do the first journey, I wanted to do it and break this women's speed record. So that stands at 38 days and something hours. And before I went, that was kind of what I aim, was aiming to do. And as soon as I got out there, I realised that after about three days, I thought this is actually about being, you know, it's my first time in Antarctica. This is about me in Antarctica and kind of surviving each day, making progress and, you know, staying alive. So it kind of became much more about that and, and actually doing everything you could every day to make progress. And that's really all you can do. So my mum was very much a believer in, you know, oh, just do your best, just try your best. And I always thought that was a bit a bit lame, to be honest. But actually, she had a point because I knew and I, it wasn't like I was disappointed not to get the record because actually I knew that I'd given everything every single day. And that's all you can do, isn't it? Because I was finishing 11 hours of skiing on my hands and knees, putting my tent up because I, you know, I was so exhausted. And I know that, you know, I kind of left it all out there every single day. So there wasn't a day that I thought oh, I could have gone a bit further or perhaps I could have skied a bit faster. I know I just gave everything and, and felt like I'd given a satisfactory account, I guess, even though I didn't I didn't get the record. So I think I was three days off. But to do it without any rest days and all the other things that I'd, I'd love to unpack a little bit more. But perhaps let's begin at your origin story, because I'm not having this conversation with an ex-Olympian or world record holder or somebody that's had kind of high level sport in their blood from an early age where does it come from in your background to want you to be able to do something so big as this I guess you probably don't appreciate your your parents perhaps as much as 
you should when you're growing up. And I had all these holidays, the Lake District. We, we didn't have kind of big, expensive foreign holidays or huge adventures. But what, wherever we did go, it was it was still an adventure. And it was often a wet week in the lakes or a cycling holiday in you know near Dartmoor and at the time I complained bitterly about you know being cold and wet and pretty miserable for a lot of the time but actually some of that obviously did kind of stay with me and then and then come back to me and having two brothers my dad definitely was a a big influence in the idea that you know I never even once occurred to me that I shouldn't do x or y because I was a a girl or a woman I, I just kind of it wasn't even in my kind of my lexicon until I started on this adventure journey and realized how many challenges and barriers there are out there and how underrepresented women and you know women who aren't kind of 18 21 are in this space and but you know growing up I never saw any of that I just saw it as kind of anyone can do anything and I genuinely believed that and I probably still do for you and and what you've taken now some people may have gone skiing but it's very different to what you managed to do could you perhaps just explain to the listeners what your trip what it entailed really the actual challenge of when I was in Antarctica was can I set off from a place called Hercules Inlet which is on the coastline of Antarctica and ski solo unsupported and unassisted to the geographic south pole and those categories probably don't matter much to most people but that means that you've had no medical resupplies or food resupplies of any kind you can't even you can't drop off a sim card or accept a cup of tea from another expedition you know people get quite particular about about the the different categories and ski 715 miles on my own with all my kit and equipment. Um, So you start off at sea level and you end up just under 10,000 feet at the South Pole. So it's uphill into wind on your own and using all the kind of, there's a lot of skill and experience needed to do a journey like that because so many things can go wrong. And when things go wrong, they go badly wrong and small things can become much bigger problems when you're on an expedition like that. So having the, the confidence and the knowledge and trusting my own judgment uh, of, you know, putting my tent up in the right direction, navigating off a, a compass on a chest mount, you know, even down to how you put the, get the cooker going. Those things came from a huge amount of very quick kind of a, um, immersive experience in various other training expeditions and making tons of mistakes on those. So I kind of made all the mistakes in my run up to it and finessed all my routines. And then actually when I got out onto the ice, I was, metronomic in my progress and almost robotic in my routines as well and those are things that I think help me cope with the kind of vastness of the task the tiny increments of progress because I'm a massive I'm the most impatient person and quite impulsive generally by nature so having to sit on those those natural traits and actually be really really methodical and careful with my kit and how I was doing everything and Um, not rushing to make decisions when something went wrong so that you're making a decision that is the right one those are all things that you know that's they were massive and I thought that people didn't go and do this journey because it was expensive which it is and because it's you know logistically quite hard to get to you're away for quite a long time but actually it's also because it's flipping hard (laughs) When I was looking through your your blog and it starts really when you you have the idea and then in your training camps in in Norway and then and then then the slowly going into Chile and and then off you go I was expecting perhaps some of the things that you would were going to talk about around the physical that your your legs were giving way or you're getting blisters or various other injuries that you can get at that temperature but you said the hardest thing was getting out in the morning getting up and getting out and so that, 
I'm assuming here that that routine then had a massive part to play in it and, and the mental game you were playing in your head. Definitely. So the the physical was was hard, but I was because I'd done a lot of that training, I was prepared for it to be hard and I'd trained pulling tires and lying in rivers and all of those things. So I was prepared for the physicality of it. Well, I definitely wasn't prepared for and it, you know it's hard to kind of gauge how you'll be because unless you've done a very long range solo journey it's hard to know what that's like because we're not on our own very often and so you know it was definitely carrying on was the probably the most difficult part of it because you can do a 10 11 day ski and then fall into a tent at night or know you're going back to a nice hotel or you know that's the end of it but to keep doing that day after day when you're getting more depleted and more tired and it was really weird, actually, because you think that you might end up, you might start sort of very upbeat and full of energy and everything's going well. And as you get more and more tired and the journey gets, you know, the, the length of the journey and the time you're out there increases, that you might end up feeling sort of less good and, and mentally less in a less good, a less good place, sort of in a, in a linear way. But it doesn't work like that. You kind of have these amazingly good days and sometimes there's no rhyme or reason to it and it can be you know the worst whiteout and bad surface and uphill and and actually you feel like you you know you quite you feel quite mentally strong and mentally good and the reverse can also be true that it can be great weather you know conditions are good progress in theory should be more straightforward but you're actually feeling exhausted and fed up but it's more like a it's more like a wave effect or a roller coaster than it is a sort of linear thing and there's no guarantee that, you know, you, just because you've had a good day, that the rest of the journey is going to be a piece of cake. It's a very, very strange thing. When you look back at it now and you unpack it, is there any clues into any of any of the reasons why you might have had those good or those bad days? It's really hard to pinpoint, actually, even looking at the, you know, the, whether I did a particularly long amount of miles compared and re, reading back through the diary. It just sounds hard every single day. <laughs> I'm quite sorry for this poor woman out there on her own. But there really doesn't seem to be anything to to tie to it. And maybe it's, you know, maybe there's something more in the physiological side that, that I wasn't aware of in terms of sort of nutrition and absorption and just, you know, the, the grinding out of two or three good days. And then perhaps, you, you know, you're just really tired after the end of that. And uh, I think the mental space really plays an important part in it as well. So whether you kind of in a mentally a good place when you get up that morning is really and I knew within kind of 10 minutes of setting out whether it was going to be a good day or not you know how you sort of felt about things did the pulp feel heavy or light just your kind of whole frame of frame of mind um, could be set up for the day and it was quite hard to kind of do a u-turn from that and actually kind of make make a what was starting out to be a bad day into a into a good day but you just hold on to that I'm an eternal optimist I think that's a really key thing for these long-range expeditions and I just held on to the fact that you know tomorrow is going to be better and sometimes it was, but, um, you know, it wasn't always, but I'm always, I've always got hope that, you know, the weather's going to be better or I'm going to feel better or the surface is going to be better. And as long as you can hold on to that, I think you can, you know, you always think that tomorrow is going to be a better day. It slides quite nicely, though, into some of your days where, and I, and you have to forgive me, you have to get this pronunciation right. Is it called Sastrugis? Sastrugi, yeah. Sastrugis. Do you mind explaining what they are to the listener? So if you imagine a ploughed field and it has these kind of hillocks of, of earth and usually they go sort of crossways. So you're cross, constantly going up and down these sastrugi and they're, they're windblown forms of ice. So they're then frozen absolutely like, you know, concrete. And so you're going across these and you're sort of, it's a bit up and down. 
but then there's a place that's I think it's 87 degrees south and it's sort of 100 miles off this Sustrugia but it's a massive it's like wind scoops like almost like the wave a wave on the, the sea which is up to six feet high and then behind it is a sort of drop of about up to six feet so you've got these kind of and and sometimes you know it's like that that kid's book about going on a bear hunt sometimes there's no choice but to go straight over them because you'll you know I can, if I go around them I've got to go right over there that's going to waste more time than just kind of skiing down and like running back up the other side so I think because I knew they were coming and because I'd spent so much time tire hauling on sand dunes or places with loads of tree roots then you just have to kind of mentally think right this is going to be slow I'm going to have to pull my polk out of a bit of sastrugi every 500 meters or whatever it was and just get through it and it's it is slow it's the kind of slowest section but um so so beautiful and again it's about finding the good in if there's you know anything that you can hang on to but just seeing these beautiful formations that are so kind of they've been there for so long and they're just so kind of like nothing you'd ever see anywhere else on the planet almost you know it's it is really amazing to be kind of in amongst them did it help that you're i have this old coach from the 1950s in my head called percy saruti that that always believed that you coach your athletes to the point of exhaustion and really hard sessions but in beautiful surroundings did it help that you were doing all of this stuff in places that you know the huge majority of the population are never going to have the opportunity to to witness and just be be elated be elevated a little bit by that beauty even though your body's screaming at you you hit it absolutely on the head because I spent so much training in kind of wet, windy Wiltshire on muddy fields and just, you know, that's that's actually can be a bit demoralising when the weather's bad. But there are times when the sun was out and the surface was good and the beauty was extraordinary. And it was like you imagine being in heaven. It was really, it was sublime. It was, you know, absolutely kind of extraordinary. And I was... I was so so lucky and it was almost that you I was almost at the point of tears at how beautiful it was and you know I thought if if I don't if I don't succeed if this all goes absolutely wrong at least I've been in this incredible incredible place that you know so few people get to see and it's just you know it's absolutely heartbreaking to think that we could be sort of damaging that in any way and it's it is you know absolutely I can't tell you how amazing and once you've been how much you do almost anything to get back there do you think for anybody listening to this podcast that you've got any helpful advice or tools that you could give to somebody that a if they if you know to wake up and have more good days than bad days and when you feel that the day at the start's just getting away from you a little bit have you anything there that that you could give as advice I wrote all these things on the inside of my tent so some of them were messages from other from friends and family or, or polar guides or other people that I kind of met on the, the journey and the run up to the, actually the start point itself. And lots of them were really positive. Like um, you can choose your attitude, which is something that I found really helpful. And I also wrote on the inside, it's a privilege to be here because while it was incredibly hard, that is a journey that, you know, so many people would give their eye teeth to even have the chance to to do because it is so expensive the time the training is so time consuming you know it's, it, it really is a privilege to be able to go and do something like that so I tried to be a, really keep that in in the forefront of my mind and there was um those two things so it's a privilege to be here choose your attitude and then um find something good and I think that was 
really key for me because whatever happens there's something that you can and it sounds quite Pollyanna-ish but it really does work so you know okay it might be a total whiteout but at least the surface is good or you know it might be really windy but at least I can see where I'm going or okay you're having a hard day but at least you've got past x point which you know was really difficult so there's always something to even if it's a tiny grain of something to hold on to that there's something good about it and I was really fortunate I had no medical or gear issues to speak of so I I I often thought about that as well and you know how okay it was a hard journey but you know imagine how much harder it would be if if you had x medical issue or you were trying to do it in the early 1900s like the Scott and the the Shackleton teams and and how hard they found it and uh, but I did I'm quite I'm I'm quite self-critical and my number one probably useful thing for me was uh, I'd I'd written a note to myself and it's it just said uh, stop crying start skiing and actually at the end of the day sometimes you've just got to do the work and put one foot in front of the other and if that's all you can do just do that a whole load of times and I think that's been a really important lesson for me overall is about consistency consistency of of effort of mileage of always putting even the smallest amount of something into something every single day is going to add up to a big hole so you know if I couldn't think about even the whole day I I could think about can I get to the next break if I can't get to the next break can I get to that blob of ice over there and then I'll get to the next blob of ice and when you kind of knit all those together you do end up with you end up with a long successful journey and that's probably my number one thing actually is just the consistency of you know just keep showing up and and putting one ski in front of the other that kind of chunking of not looking too far ahead at the really quite scary thing that's that you've set yourself and and putting it into smaller into smaller goals is that something that you use now in your everyday life completely in fact I do I do talk to people about sort of life lessons from the from the edge of the world and and that's probably one of the number one most important things because training for a big expedition is a sounds like a monumental task and you've got visions of you know hauling tires for hours and hours and that does happen but actually if you can just get your boots on or just get your hauling harness on or just get out the door you know that's probably the hardest bit over and then it really is just a matter of just those little goals all the time so you know when I get to this point I'm gonna put on my favorite song or and little rewards as well so you know I'm going to treat myself to two Pringles and a piece of crystalline ginger or whatever it was you know it started getting a bit ridiculous towards the end but um when I was getting sort of low on supplies but um little rewards for and celebrating those successes you know I've made it to the end of another day I'm still here you know I've I've succeeded in a way and and made some progress and I'm closer to my goal so those things yeah definitely helps those kind of incremental bits of progress and, and noting those and noticing them how much of your confidence in what you were doing was based in your preparation your time that you spent in Norway and Greenland and Iceland it's a really interesting one actually because I know I had all this training and one of I had all these mantras because I was there's there's a Maya Angelou quote which goes uh, having courage does not mean you are unafraid so I knew I was going to do this massive journey and honestly I it was like slightly terrifying incredibly daunting and I had all these mantras which one of which was um trust your training and experience and I know that everybody back home was really rooting for me they all said oh you know you're going to smash this we know you've got this and all the things that people say and I think I was probably the only person that didn't actually believe that and we all got dropped off by this little ski plane at the start point and the one guided group went off and another soloist went off and I set off skiing and doing all the things all the motions that I'd gone through and I was thinking actually this is 
this is all right. And, and then a storm came on sort of day three or four and I dug a big sort of platform out for my tent and I dug a snow wall. Um, it's quite, I was very proud of it actually. Um, and uh, during the night, the sort of wind vortex around the, the tent sort of started burying the tent. And it was really actually quite a frightening experience. And I was worried about being you know, buried in my tent. So, you know, you sort of go out there and dig yourself out again. And I kind of feel like I went into this tent as a kind of slightly scared mum of four that was doing something completely, utterly crazy. And I came out thinking, actually, you do know what you're doing. You know, you've, you've got the skills to do this. You've, you've survived this because you've got the experience and the training. And that's when I actually started to believe that I could do it. And trust and I started to trust my own judgment because I had no choice you know if I didn't trust my judgment then the whole thing was going to unravel and then I started to realize actually you can navigate you can be in these hard harsh conditions and look after yourself properly and and minimizing that risk as a mother was really really important to me you know I didn't want to do anything that was stupid I didn't want to risk not coming back so you know, it was, it was super important to me that I'd done the preparation to the nth degree that I, you know, so that I knew that whatever happened, I would have the tools to deal with it. And did that include some of the, you know, you don't know what you don't know. So there would have been gaps in your knowledge from different areas, whether it was medical or nutrition or physiological. And I know, did you link into all of the various appropriate people to kind of create a network around you of people that were guiding you to make the right decisions? Absolutely, definitely. And although it was a solo, I will say, although it was a solo journey, it definitely wasn't a solo effort. And I knew that because, you know, five years before I'd just had an office job and a family and I'd, you know, I'd run a couple of marathons, but there was nothing kind of out there that was, that would point to, you know, success at this. I had to really look at every other aspect that I could find that would help me. So I was scientific about, as scientific as I could be about the nutrition and and my kit and and preparing you know I'd be I'd go and lie in rivers and then after I'd laid in the river or the ice bath I'd then put my tent up in the city room you know so that you're doing it with sort of cold hands and with a with sort of cold body and feeling quite sort of depleted um so that that was in my muscle memory so I left no stone unturned in my kind of quest to to give myself the very best chance but I still there's more there's definitely more that can be done there and did you do anything because you I think you would have burnt around 10,000 calories a day when you were out there probably more like so for for a woman it's kind of, it's probably somewhere around five and a half calories okay. a day, six thousand calories a day and you're always in deficit because if you took enough calories which is so I, put, I think I took four and a half to five thousand. But if you take enough to fully replenish the ones that you've used, then your pulk's so heavy that you use more calories. And there's this weird tipping point. And I don't know how whether I got that scientifically 100 percent correct. But certainly the general consensus is that you end, you do end up losing weight because you are expending so much energy and you don't want to carry, you know, tons and tons of, of food. So, yeah, that was uh, it was kind of every aspect that I wanted to try and get right. But paradoxically, there would have been times, I think I, I remember reading that you didn't want to eat the porridge early because it was, although it was very calorific, the appetite wasn't there necessarily, which for some people, they would be thinking, well, crikey, if, if you're doing 11 hours in what, minus 35, it got as low as, as that. And you've got, you're pulling the sled full of everything that that's keeping you alive and keeping you going. You've obviously got to be starving all the time, but that wasn't always the case, right? Certainly not initially. And that's, that is a lot of calories. And it's certainly a lot of calories to eat in the morning. And it's a lot of calories to eat in the morning when you actually feel 
you know, mentally and physically quite sort of quite low and trying to eat a massive breakfast when you feel actually a bit apprehensive about the day ahead is almost the most, you know, that's probably the most difficult thing. And you're just trying to cram down as much as you can to, to fuel you. But yeah, I definitely staggered it a bit. So I had fewer calories at the start and then, and then built up and had a really nice big fat loaded calories and puddings and everything in the middle and then back down to a sort of um, reserve amount for the last five days I think so no more puddings the food is really weird because it's like it comes back to the whole routine thing because I know which of those foods that are from the exhibition foods menu that are my favorites that I can stomach really easily and it's all sort of comfort food mac and cheese and fish and potato pie and I think I had two others um, but I, I literally rotated and I could have probably quite happily eaten fish and potato pie every single night because it was this this way of kind of controlling everything that I could control because you can't control the environment of knowing, right, I'm having two Pringles, one one square of crystalline ginger, fish and potato pie, then I'm going to call back and do the blog. And it was just, and even to the extent of putting, you know, wires into my chargers in the same order, it just helped me kind of figure this monumental journey that I had to do into these kind of manageable bits because then I'd done that bit and then it's like that habit stacking thing isn't it where you know you've done the right things in the right order so you haven't forgotten anything like uh, atomic habits you know it's all those small things and they and they add up have you always been quite good nutritionally and there's any of the stuff that you've had insight into that you you'd use now that there's certain foods that you know you know this really gives me good energy this makes me feel level anything that you've taken away from the south pole to your day-to-day I think in training, I'm definitely quite carb heavy and that works for me, but I haven't, I haven't ever had sort of um, blood nutrition analysis, but I'm hoping, to, I'm hoping to do that for, um, for my next trip, which we might come on to talking about later. But um, I te- what tends to work for me is kind of fat and carbs. So mac and cheese and butter was a, you know, fish and potato pie with, with extra butter. And I kind of didn't worry so much about, because you need so much kind of so many calories that the nuts and the the cheese and everything I didn't sort of worry about eating things that were processed but since I've come back I've been quite careful about eating trying to eat more whole foods and trying to make sure that my nutrition is 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 sort of optimum for training I guess but yeah I I mean I already knew I loved like a chip butty would be ideal pre-training you know rightly or wrongly that's you know that would be my ideal pre-training snack and didn't you have to I think in one of your training blocks you had had in your snack pack so you you have these packs where you, you didn't really have the time to be able to stop and prepare meals that you had these kind of grab packs really and the they would be made up of all sorts of different things but at the start in the in the training did you see that find that you just got that didn't get that quite right that they were they were too savory Oh, I got it so wrong. Oh, it was absolutely hideous. And I think that was, well, I got it wrong on every journey until I actually did the Antarctic journey. So it's good to try lots of different things and see what works for you. But what definitely didn't work was whacking all the cheese and chocolate and nuts and everything all in sort of one big bag. Definitely keep sort of cheese separate because the cheese tainted the Mintero and the Mintero tainted the nuts and everything tasted like weirdly of nothing and everything. And it's absolutely disgusting. And I was like forcing myself to eat this grazing bag because you, you just, you have to, there's nothing else. And a few people, on, that was on the Greenland trip. So a few of the rest of the team would occasionally feel sorry for me and like throw me a slice of Terry's chocolate orange or something out of pity because I was eating this stuff and literally gagging because it was just so, like, so inedible. But actually, weirdly enough, sort of the further on in the journey we got and the hungrier I got, 
the better it tasted. So, you know, I, but having made that mistake once, you know, you have, you always have to go and do those things to, to know exactly what not to do, you know, because that's, that's definitely not a mistake I've made since. I'm assuming you also had to keep an eye on your hydration levels. I would drink at every break whether I wanted to or not. And sometimes the flask was what you'd refill your sort of your Nalgene, your water bottle out of. And sometimes that was, you know, it's frozen. So you're drinking something that's super chilled. And actually what you're trying to do is drink something warm. So that was that was pretty unpleasant at times. But, yeah, that was that was important. And running out of water was the reason I had to stop on that day. That was probably about zero degrees and the sun was out and you know, once you run out of water, that's it. You kind of have to pitch your tent and, and start melting snow again. But yeah, hydration was really important. And I had protein powder at the end of the day and mixing up this protein powder into your water bottle and kind of shaking it up, it made it into sort of strawberry milkshake, which was like the best thing you've ever tasted in your life. And actually off expedition, it probably isn't that great, but you're just so grateful for the small things and really appreciative of your you know your your two pringles or your or your one fruit pastel or whatever you've got in your grazing bag you just appreciate that so much it really gives you a new perspective on what's important and just getting into the tent at night and being in this sanctuary and having your having your protein powder was like it was like heaven it was like the best moment of the day there was a a theme when when you read your blogs of not only just kind of chunking things but also having small little treats lined up in advance was it more for the mental side than the physical side? It absolutely was that. You've read my blog really thoroughly. Yeah. It absolutely was about the mental thing and the reward and being able to delay that reward as much as possible as well. So it's back to the whole, I don't know as a child whether I'd been, I'd have succeeded at the marshmallow test, but certainly when I'm training and on expedition, I'm, I'm good at saying, right, you can have your terry's chocolate orange you know on christmas day and i had it safely in my pulk for christmas day but when it got to christmas day i thought well actually what you really need to do is wait until two days after christmas day and i managed to just keep moving that reward a little bit further back and actually weirdly in the end i never ate it because i kind of was keeping it all the time in reserve but that kind of notion of being able to just okay we'll just ski over to that blob of ice and then you can change your book your audio book but actually when you get to that blob blob of ice you think actually i can do a little bit more than that and I think we can always all do a little bit more than than perhaps what we think we can. And just even if you just shift that reward, even, you know, marginally forwards, you can just kind of reframe it a little bit and then make just that little bit extra progress. And nutrition is, is absolutely vital in so many in so many different levels to what you did. And for you, I was I was also interested, just as an aside, did your sled get much lighter as you got through the 42 days? because of the food, the, the food bags. They were in 10 kilogram bags, weren't they? Or 10 day bags. So 10 day bags, which was just over 10 kilos. So I managed to get it, I think it was 1.1, 1.2 kilos a day. And again, the mental kind of milestone of rolling up a 10 day food bag was pretty awesome. So you'd roll this up and you'd know that you'd lost 10 kilos out of your pulk. And at the same time that you were becoming more tired and slightly more depleted. So it never occasionally I went out started skiing was like wow this you know is it even is it am I even attached to it you know it feels so light I'm kind of bounding along but again that necessarily wasn't wasn't necessarily the case the next day um, but yeah it did actually become and one of the other things I'd written on the inside of my tent was um your polk is lighter every single day and that mental knowledge of you know and if you do it without a resupply so you're not picking up and reweighting your picking up food and reweighting your sled that is a, a really nice kind of thing to have at the back of your mind that every day your pulk is lighter than 
than the day before and you're burning fuel as well so you know the ideal thing is to arrive with fumes and so I think I arrived with sort of one pudding or something so that was you know that was the absolute ideal that I'd used everything when I hadn't carried anything I didn't I didn't need but everything has to also I mean you can't just leave stuff you know everything has to be collected and um depends when people listen to this Wendy but literally when you get into that last degree I think everything has to get collected right yeah so you poop in a bag and uh, people get sort of really hung up on on this aspect of it but it's like how how you go to Lunar Antarctica it's actually you know, it's, there's a bit of an art to it, but also it is really important because, you know, some people kind of find, find the whole idea a bit bit strange and they find that aspect of it difficult. But actually pooping in a bag when you're, you know, in this kind of windy, deeply cold environment is actually quite difficult. <laughs> and doing that sort of accurately and successfully and then you've got to, you know, pack it up and take it with you. And that's that's to make sure that everything is absolutely as as pure as it can be for scientific purposes and research around the South Pole, right? Exactly so. So, yeah, they want to kind of preserve this pristine environment out to 89 degrees, so 60 nautical miles, and so that they, if they're drilling for ice, they don't get some, you know, some expeditions poop from five odd years ago. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah that, yeah, that would be odd. Do you like being on your own before this trip? Are you happy, like, just, like, spending time on your own with no one else around you? I'm okay in my own company. Um, I wouldn't say that, you know... I, 40 odd days was something that was easy. Did you learn anything about yourself? So much, so much, because I did go into it thinking, and that's the very nature of challenge, isn't it? That you you don't actually know whether you can do it, because if you did, it wouldn't be a challenge. But I sort of went into it very, very conflicted. You know, I'd done all this training. I sort of believed in myself, but actually, you know, there were, there were all those negative things that creep in as well. You know, like, they're all just waiting for you to mess up. Now, I had no idea who who they were and they probably weren't actually but what I realized was that I had huge reserves of determination self-reliance and endurance to the extent that I had it tattooed on my wrist so you can see this but the listeners can't I've had Fortitude and Evincimus tattooed on my wrist which is the Shackleton family motto and the family motto is by endurance we conquer and I you know and Antarctic journeys don't necessarily need about suffering about suffering so much and, you know, coming back with sort of, you know, lots of frostbite injuries and that kind of thing. But there is a certain nature of endurance to those kind of journeys. And it's relentless. It's not like you get climbed sort of to camp two and then have a couple of days of climatization, come down, whatever. You're actually, it's just every single day you're skiing for 10, 11 hours a day without a rest day, without a late start, without even any time off for Christmas day or anything. And it's, you know, it was really really full on and I remember lying on my tent um, lying on my sleeping bag at one point and I think I lay there for about 30 seconds and I was thinking I actually don't have anything to do for 30 whole seconds because it's always something to do either you need to be making progress you need to be putting your tent up you need to be melting snow doing the blogs getting a decent night's sleep and then it just starts again you know there's absolutely no let up so being able to just endure and just keep going day after day was you know was something I wasn't sure about but actually it turns out that's something that I was pretty okay at. One of the things you were really honest about on your journey was that you'd be off on on skiing where you have got a lot of time and you'll come up with what you thought at the time were these very wise feelings and thoughts and when you then got home in the evening they they had left your body and you've forgotten about those or whatever they were. Have they ever have they returned? Have you had any any wise moments that have come back to you remotely after the woods 
sadly not you know I was expecting this sort of all these epiphanies and spiritual experiences and stuff but actually yeah you're you're so exhausted by the time you get into the tent that I, you know I've I've forgotten anything that was remotely useful about it but obviously it was useful at the time because it you know enabled me to keep going, to keep going. What about the audiobooks? You had you had a lot of those lined up that you you listened to. Were you constantly listening to something on your on when you were working through? I have to admit, I was because what I wanted to do was be immersed and be in the moment and be very mindful. But I actually, what I needed in the end was just some escapism, you know, just to be and and the comfort of the spoken voice as well. Because you know, at home there's sort of the radio on or people around, and you don't have that. And I listen to music to begin with. And for some people that really works. And I've got some crazy thoughts about if I listen to music at a certain beat, then I do a certain number of steps and I do the right, you know, but um, that, that's never science quite, behind that though. Definitely. And I, that hasn't materialized yet, but um, it actually started to drive me slightly mad because you'd, I'd put on a song and I'd be thinking, right, okay, this is a nice song but you kind of know what's coming next. Or if you don't, then you start thinking, well, one song that's like three ish minutes Perhaps I can pretend it's a bit more than that. You know, how many songs is it going to be before I can stop for a break? How many songs has it been? Has it been three now or four now? And it just ends up like another way of marking time. And it actually just, it didn't work for me. I listened to it on a few occasions, but it wasn't, it wasn't great. There's definitely different schools of thought about that. I remember speaking to a long distance runner, Liz McColgan, and she was very anti listening to music on any of her runs because she wanted to feel what her body was was feeding back to her and she always would say well in the competition I don't get to have the headphones on but for you in in your competition you did so um what's your favorite book oh this amazing book so I so you've probably read it that um I I didn't take nearly enough uh I had um Audible gave me some some credits and actually as many credits as I wanted so that was amazing but I didn't actually download anything like enough so I think I had 20 books and I thought well 20 books I'll be out there for 40 odd days you know that sounds about right you know books are quite quite lengthy but somehow I sort of started running out of them pretty quickly and the slight panic of having the secret barrister but then realizing I hadn't actually downloaded it was was a bit of a low point but um I went for lots of super long books and they sort of started to get a bit on my nerves actually and then um I listened to this one Ben McIntyre Rogue Heroes about the establishment of the SAS in North Africa and I just it was I don't think I could have listened to Antarctic books about suffering in Antarctica I don't think that would have been very good for me but these men and the the real endurance and the real danger that they had to endure was just you know an absolutely another level and it was so well written and read that I just could immerse myself in this book. I ended up listening to Road Heroes three times and it blew me away every single time. So I think, you know, definitely sort of food for thought for, for next time about what kind of thing worked for me. And, and humour as well. I had this David Mitchell sort of satire book that he'd written, which was all his, some of his articles all sort of knitted together and he was reading it. And I just remember listening to it probably for the second or third time, but listening to it and falling over and just falling over and laughing because I was, you know, I had this, this funny book to listen to so they were they were absolutely critical for morale I want to take you back a little bit now because um when you went to your pre-camps and I actually looked on Google for the hotel that you stayed at in Norway it looked amazing like this hotel that was just covered in snow and and you did a lot of your training there but when you got in the plane it's an old old Russian plane right that I think that you got got on so what maybe you can 
talk this one through because I, I'd love to know what your thought process was when you got in that plane and then also when, when you landed that moment. I think because it had been so hard won, I think, you know, that when I first went to Norway, I'd never really been in snow conditions like that and it was pretty shocking and I wasn't, you know, it was, I, I was sort of wasn't sure if I could do anything like that even ever again and, and the amount of time and effort and sacrifice that I put into getting the funding, doing the training, doing all these training trips and, you know, all the lying in rivers and everything. This was my one shot, you know, it wasn't like I had, I could sell fund to go down and have another go. It wasn't like I was a super well-connected name that could just go and ask for some more money to do it again. It was really all or nothing. And it just meant so much to me that I'd made it even as far as getting on this plane, this Russian illusion plane where there were sort of all these crazy Russian pilots that didn't speak English and, because it was a cargo plane, you were there with some of the, the cargo, but also there's no passenger windows. They just put some, some seats in there for you. And so you can't see your arrival into Antarctica. You take off in Punta Arenas in Chile and you're in this box for four hours. And it's only when you land, they open the door and you get your first glimpse of this just incredible and ethereal and brutal continent that you know I'd worked so hard just to kind of get down get on that plane and get off the steps and set foot in Antarctica and there was I was crying literally crying and one of the one of the directors of the logistics company just put their arms around me and said oh you know it has that effect on me as well and I'm uh, I can see how much it means to you and it just it just meant everything to just have even got to that point so I just felt so so kind of just overwhelmed really it was a really overwhelming moment was there any anything at that point where you, was you feeling like I'm excited I'm ready to go there was no point you thinking oh man I've forgotten to do this or I need a bit more information about this or another week would be great to just get myself more prepared I felt prepared but I was actually also terrified <laughs> I was prepared I you know I'd got, done everything I needed to do and I was sort of sat in the the cook tent sort of chatting to other people who are doing Vincent and stuff and somebody actually said I've never seen anyone who's doing a, a solo journey look more relaxed about it and I wasn't relaxed about doing the actual journey part of it I was I was obviously really worried about that but I was relaxed that I'd I prepared what I needed to do and actually as soon as I have lots of those feelings in the run-up to it and then as soon as I'm actually doing it I don't kind of I don't feel those feelings of, of, of sort of isolation anxiety I never felt lonely um, because I'm so focused on actually doing the job so um yeah I kind of those those things happen in the build-up and then as soon as I'm as soon as I'm kind of released from from the start line then those those kind of feelings seem to dissipate and then when you get back I remember lying in in the, a wonderful heated tent when I finished because um there are some at the at Union Glacier at the logistics space and then started sort of processing it and that takes a long time I feel like I'm still processing it now two odd years down the line but thinking about things like, oh, you know, that could have gone really wrong at that point. That was actually really dangerous. I was really like, actually really alone out there. It was, you know, completely on my own. And, and those things I could, I managed to completely set aside when I was actually on the journey. They didn't kind of impinge on my thoughts at all. Are you more comfortable now when there's decisions in your, in your life that can be scary and big and involve risk that you're happy to know that even if you're prepared that with that it doesn't suddenly mean that your nerves go out the window that you can still feel all of those things in your gut even if your heart is kind of singing about the excitement about what you might be doing your gut is doing somersaults it's such a valuable lesson that you know you can just carry on and do these things even if you're scared and I think the idea that 
you know none of us are ever scared and all of us always feel you know really excited about doing things like that would is absolutely you know that's that's a fiction you know we all feel anxious before a job interview or public speaking or a big game or you know a big expedition those those feelings and thoughts are always there but actually you can you can kind of learn to to sit alongside those and live with those feelings and still do it rather than it preventing you from doing it. As soon as you start doing that and you get comfortable with being uncomfortable, you realise how much more is possible and how much more you're capable of. Because certainly when I finished Norway, I thought, you know, that was pretty hard. I finished Greenland and I thought that was extraordinarily hard. You know, that was a proper adventure. There was lots of risk, you know, hurricanes and goodness knows what else. And I finished that and thought, that was super hard. I'm not sure I could do anything harder than that. But then when I finished Antarctica, I, th- I actually started thinking, well, hang on a second, you keep saying that, but you just keep stretching the boundaries of what is possible for you. So actually, there are no limits, the limits are what you put on yourself and what are in your head. And I kind of felt st- scarily invincible at the end of that. And yeah, that was a that was a surprise. And I, I remember, I think I gave a a talk just after I finished and I said oh you know I successfully did this journey and then I suddenly went oh and no one's more surprised about that than I am and then getting used to the fact that you've kind of had this success and celebrating that and it's coming back to celebrating your successes big or small is kind of has been quite a life-changing experience. You've mentioned it a few times very just just very off the cut you know uh you know and then you know I, I was lying in rivers i think for the for the for the listener can you explain exactly what you meant what did you what did you do did you just find any any estuary or uh inlet and just lie in them <laughs> I mean. kind of it sounds like it sounds quite mad when you say it like that but i have this amazing coach called john and john fern and i've been working together for quite a few years now and he sort of took me on as his um, as his project to get me ready for this this big epic expedition because it is about that sustainable effort over a very very many days and the training was extraordinary in places and you know always quite challenging but never at the point where because I think if I'd been doing it by myself my training would probably consist of me absolutely thrashing myself for three months and getting injured but actually it was so cumulative I almost didn't notice the kind of the growing strength and and fitness that was happening and no one session ever felt like impossible or I mean I was doing um, hill reps and I was calling them hell reps and the more I moaned about them the more he gave me to do because it was it was part of that whole mental thing about doing things that you perhaps don't feel like doing which will help you get out of the tent in the morning even though you don't feel like it so the lying in rivers was it was more it was less sort of let's prepare you physiologically for the cold and it was more let's do something you don't really feel like doing Um, you know you have to dunk yourself three times or whatever it is you know that means that you can get your head around doing things you don't want to do and that was the closest thing that I can identify that was mental preparation through physical preparation almost the hill runs or the hell runs as you called them you know it's a big thing as part of most my my training philosophy is, is using hills or sand dunes or whatever but do you like to know how many reps you have to do or do you prefer not being told Oh, I have to do you have to know have so, to know. yeah so, and I do it visually as well so I've got you know I'd have 10 pebbles or six twigs or whatever it was so I'd move them from one side to the other so I could have that visual progress of knowing you know how far I'd got to go and when you're over halfway, that's psychologically pretty pretty good okay so if I was your coach at that moment and we had done that and gone right when when are we going to be doing like 10 reps of this right fine you got your pedals pebbles out and off you went and then I'm thinking as you got to the end of it right I'm gonna mess with her head a little bit here and I can see that physically she probably can 
eke out a couple more. So I give you two or three more. How's that go? How's that landing with you? That sounds really mean. Actually. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, it, you know, I would I would be selling I it. Bet was... any, I bet you any money he's listening to this and he's going to now be going, oh, yeah, that's a good idea, Ben. I think I like that. One, um, well, I suppose the good thing about that and the more you dislike it, probably the more important it is to do things like that, is that, um, you know, you can't control stormy days or increased wind or having to do an extra mile or an extra hour because you haven't covered the distance, all of those things. So, yeah, there's probably there's probably something in that, actually, that, that but because um, I do it remotely, my coach trusts me that I've done the amount of reps, but sometimes I will throw in an extra one just to kind of, and it's all about sort of proving to myself, but he's not there to say oh you know we're going to do something different today but i'm sure he's going to figure out a way now <laughs> well yeah there's plenty of ways if you if you give me his email address i can, I can... <laughs> i'm not giving <laughs> do you daydream about it at all now oh yeah i often think about being back out there especially now because i'm managing an expedition for a team that's out there so i'm thinking all the time about you know what what it was like when i was there and it's funny old thing you know they're going through all the tough times that I went through with weather and out and steep inclines and poor, poor surface and all the rest of it. But I don't remember it like that. I only remember the good things. <laughs> Do you also feel that as you've started your journey and we talked about how you plugged into various people that helped you along your way, that kind of guided you, that you've flipped that a little bit. And now that you are, you have become the guide for other people, not just for the expeditions, but to navigate difficult moments in their lives, to overcome obstacles, to realise that more things higher, you know, there's a glass ceiling can be broken, all those various things. I'd love to think that anybody could take some value from what I've done and the, the journey that I've been on and some of the lessons that I've learned could take some of that and and use it in their own life in, in any way at all. And people, you know, people do say that. Sometimes they message me and say, oh, I went to the gym early this morning because I saw your post about, you know, getting up early yesterday. And, um, you know, I really want to say to women in particular, but why not men as well? You know, I want to say to others, you know, it doesn't matter that you haven't decided what you want to do by the time you're 18 or 21, just because you've got a family, that doesn't mean that that's the end of your adventures. And I truly believe that one, there's a big adventure in every heart, whatever that means to you. And two, that expeditions can change who you truly are. So if I can, bring those and I in a small way I'm I'm doing that and with with my current job and then you know in my social circle taking people out on these on these journeys you know if you if you can start small and just try these expeditions and just realize how much it builds your resilience your confidence your problem solving skills your adaptability you know there's so many things that we can use in everyday life and actually being in those really rigorous difficult environments gives you so much perspective so, you know, you're sat in a traffic jam, but so what? You know, you've got 100 emails. So what? You know, there's, there's, there's bigger things, you know, big life and death things, big important things that are, you know, that can really make you sort of see things in a different light. I couldn't agree more. And your challenge had all sorts of lessons that you learned and all sorts of energy and effort that you had to put in to get the 42 days towards the South Pole. And as you said, I think you fell over every day, right? <laughs> I think pretty much every day, yeah, because I wasn't I wasn't the best skier and I still claim to only be able to ski uphill, but I'm remedying that now. <laughs> I'm interested in the conversation I have with, you know, and it's a personal one and one to, to other people where you have these these huge goals and you achieve them. And so that, that moment where it was quite early, was it quite early in the morning that you got into, did you ski overnight to 
to get skied in overnight so I'd been skiing for 12 hours or 11 or 12 hours so I'd done a day's stint but it's 24 hour daylight there so I put up my tent ate everything I had left pretty much apart from my my sort of slight my one emergency pudding and just thought a I'm too excited to sleep now there's no way I'm going to sleep knowing I'm so close and b you know just pretend like you've had a night's sleep pack up your stuff you can make yourself imagine that you have and just carry on skiing and I've done it before in in Greenland and other places so you know I know it's achievable especially so close to the goal when you're excited and you've got all that kind of anticipation so I, I skied I just packed up and started skiing again and I've been skiing probably 15 14 15 hours and I was 9.6 nautical miles from the pole and I know because by the time you get that close you're kind of on your on your GPS sort of looking at how far you've got to go and I saw it over on the horizon and it was just the most incredible moment of realization that I was going to succeed and and I'd done it you know I, I was going to make it and that was actually a more exciting, pivotal, moving, meaningful moment than actually arriving at Pole, which was a slight anticlimax because I got in there at sort of eight in the morning. Someone put their head out of the tent and said, oh, yeah, South Pole's over that way about a kilometre. Are you all right to get there? And I sort of carried on, you know, skied off. But normally you'd kind of arrive during the, more like the daytime and then people would be there to sort of congratulate you but there wasn't any of that you don't even get medaled for arriving at the south pole you know you just kind of you get there and I rang up and I said well because there's the uh, ceremonial pole which is a stripy pole with a big silver ball on top just like you might imagine it and then there's the actual geographic south pole which moves because the ice moves over the landmass, so it moves around a little bit every year so they go and put a sort of brass pole in where it really is so that's the real sort of official finish point so I sort of skied off and it was kind of behind some oil drums and near some flags and you know some, some sort of south pole junk that was out there and I rang up and I said well stop the clock because I, I think I'm here um but it wasn't the same as you know actually kind of seeing the south pole station and being like I've done it how long did it stay with you the the elation around the whole challenge finishing I know you said almost immediately it wasn't quite the same as the approach but was it next what's next or did you have did you have time to really enjoy it? How did you feel about that? I went back to so at the South Pole it was it was actually fun because they have a, a cook tent there. I don't know how they do it, but they magic up this incredible food and I could not stop eating. So I just sat in the cook tent and as people sort of drifting in and out on different things, they'd sort of say hello and ask what you've been doing and they'd just be looking at me like you've done what? What? <laughs> you've just been on your own for what? <laughs> they just couldn't get their heads around, you know that sort of length of time and how extraordinary it was and they were all really in awe and that just felt really weird but also really nice that you know I got that appreciation of how much hard work it had been and then I went back to Union Glacier which is the logistics base in Antarctica. How did you get back there? So I took a um, I took a plane and what had taken me 42 days to ski took me four and a half hours to fly back and that was that was pretty incredible, actually, because I was flying over and we just, you know, four and a half hours of flying time. That's quite, you know, it's a long way. I was looking out at this endless, endless ice thinking, wow, you just skied over that entire bit of the continent. I mean, it was pretty incredible. And then getting back to Union Glacier, there were people who there were mountaineers who were doing the seven summits. There were people doing different expeditions, a couple of kind of pretty well-known mountaineers and people in the mountaineering world. And I, I sat down and sort of came in and explained what I'd done. And they were just absolutely like agog at having done that. They were like, oh, can you know, Hannah, how long have you been, how long have you been an adventurer? I'm like, well, I'd probably
probably about five minutes actually <laughs> I hadn't kind of clocked that, that that's how it was going to be viewed but then going back to the UK my family and friends were obviously you know so so delighted for me and that was great but I went back to work and they were like oh um that 10 o'clock meeting have you done the thing for it and it was literally like straight back into the real world like I've been on holiday because they didn't get it so actually being in Union Glacier among people who understood was probably the the highlight of kind of trying to see myself as they saw me it was it was an interesting thing but even now that's that's all still percolating and you haven't and, decompressed yet maybe not quite maybe not quite because I'm sort of I'm planning the next one now so no I, and I think being able to see how it's changed you and get used to that change that also takes a while and so for the next one what have you got up your sleeve so I'd like to go back and do the the women's speed record that was what I would ideally because that was that was always kind of what I had in the back of my mind and I think now having done it once I've looked at the way that I did it before I've looked at all the nutrition and kit and I think outside of expedition life anyway we could probably optimize how we're living our lives to a better degree than we are now so how can I optimize my sleep my nutrition the kit the the training you know what kind of data can I use to, in, in the way that um, I'm sure lots of your listeners will know about British cycling and how they went from just wanting to win medals to actually winning medals because they looked everything from... Well, the marginal you know, gains. Exactly, the marginal gains, exactly that. And, you know, I love a good study. So studies show that um, teams that wear red are more successful. And I think, you know, if I can sort of be really scientific about it and absolutely sort of cut those finely sliced bits of improvement in every area, that that is really achievable. And that last answer from Wendy summed up a lot of what she is about and what fuels her fire, curiosity. She doesn't just settle for the status quo and she doesn't wait or settle for something to bring her some answers, but she grabs it by the tuft of the neck and she gets on with doing. Being self-sufficient and working out the best way to approach and do something is a trait that is sometimes lost with professional athletes and quite frankly, a lot of us in this modern world. Most things are a click or a WhatsApp question away, but by doing the hard yards yourself, you quickly get better at filtering what really works for you and also not getting too disturbed or rattled when not everything lines up perfectly. Feeling steady when everything is wobbling around you is a very sought after skill to have and one I think we should still all encourage. Ultimately, in nearly all the very hard moments we have, we are on our own to make those crucial decisions or feel a certain way. That's easy to slump into the comfortable, but one way to help avoid that is just be more reliant on you. And for me, that's the lesson I got from Wendy. Now we mentioned quite a few resources in this show and I'll reference and link all of them and more in the show notes that are available at benryan.co.uk forward slash podcast and in the show description on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts. Wendy can also be found on social media at, at Between Snow and Sky on Twitter and Instagram. And the selfpole2020.com website is also a great place to check out her blogs and more information on the expeditions. See you all next week. This has been Culture and Performance with Ben Ryan. <laughs>